Thanks, Megan, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany, both here within the walls of the sanctuary, also online. If you're worshiping with us that way, I'd like to thank you. We're continuing in a series entitled Cultivating Faith, whereby we're looking at what God has to say to us regarding our relationship with the earth. Uh, This is basically the halfway point, and this may be uh, the most intensely theological of the series where I'm hoping to incite you to a mindset shift in order that you might look at the world differently. So please join me in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you that we can be here within these walls in freedom to listen for your voice today. And our desire, Father, is to shine as light in the midst of darkness, to be people of hope in a world of despair, and indeed to embody the full calling that you've given us as reconcilers. So would you teach us toward that end today, Father, and we'll thank you. Praying in Christ's name, amen. I live at uh, the divide, essentially, of the Cascades at Snoqualmie Pass. And what's fun about a divide is the snow comes down, and right at the divide, the snow that falls on the east side and the west side is very close, but ends up ultimately in very different places. If it falls on the east side near our house, It goes into Cole Creek. Cole Creek goes into Lake Ketchelis, Lake Ketchelis to the Yakima River, the Yakima to the Columbia, the Columbia to Astoria. If, on the other hand, it's by the gas station, which is King County, uh, it ends up in Denny Creek and then uh, the middle fork of the Stoqualamie and ultimately finds its way down into Puget Sound. So the water falls really close to each other but ends up in very different places. The same thing has happened theologically within the umbrella of people of faith regarding environmentalism. We all claim Christ, but there's a different view on how we relate to the environment. And uh, essentially, uh, I'm going to offer a quiz at the outset this morning uh, so that you can kind of look at this and see why there's a divide. And so here's the question on the table. What is reconciled by the work of Christ on the cross? A, B, or C? And the answer... I'm just going to play my hand, is C. But I will say to you that throughout the history of the church, various versions of A and B have existed. And in those versions, the, the reconciling power of God is confined either to I'm made right with God, so I'm going to heaven when I die, or I'm made right with God and called to fix things with you, But as far as the earth goes, well, whatever, it's all going to burn anyway, right? And so we want to offer C as an understanding that God's calling is to reconcile us with God and one another and all of creation. That's where I'm going to take you uh, this morning. And and I, I want you to see here that the work of all things being reconciled began on the cross And we'll continue until the work is finished. But until then, our calling is to be ambassadors for and ministers of what I call holistic reconciliation, right? And so we're going to see this today by looking at three declarations from Scripture. First of all, the deepest reality. What's the, like, foundation? What's most real in this world? Second, the difficult reality, the world in which we live today, the problems we face. Third, the disciples' response, right? Deepest reality, difficult reality, disciples' response, And the context is, uh, we have these two texts to look at this morning. 
both written by the Apostle Paul, one to the Colossians, one to the Corinthians, uh, and two kind of key thoughts. The first thought uh, comes predominantly from Colossians, but also is hinted at in uh, Corinthians. It's this phrase, all things, right? And the, and the second consideration is reconciliation. And we're going to kind of weave those together in our time. And we have to begin by looking at the deepest reality. In other words, fundamentally, in God's heart, God's design for creation, what is God's, what's the deepest reality? What is God's desire for creation? And we find this in Colossians chapter 1, beginning to read in uh, verse 13 through 20. But I'm going to start reading right now in verse 16. For by him, by Christ, all things were created. In the heavens and the earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Christ is the head of the church, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So if you're a Bible study student, you know, if you read your Bible and you're supposed to do this kind of observation phrase of Bible study, one of the things that you look for is a, uh, a repetitive phrase. And the repetitive phrase in this particular text is what? All things. All things, all things, all things, all things. What are we, what are we learning? First of all, all things are created by Christ. All things are created through Christ. All th- and then watch this. All things are created for Christ as well, right? And of course, we know from Genesis 1 that all things that God has created are good. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that the definition of good that's driving our conversation here is something is good when it's functional. Your car is good if it gets you from here to there. But no matter how fancy it is, if it can't get you from here to there, it's not functional. Therefore, it's not a good car. So when it says that God creates all things good, all things are functional. Now, stay with me here. All things aren't just created by Christ, but it says they're created for Christ. Well, what does Christ want from all things? We're created for, and they fill in the blank, and we know from the whole tenor of Scripture that all things are intended to worship. I mean, everything has a unique function. Trees do their thing. Whales do their thing. Salmon do their thing. You do your thing. I do my thing. But we're all intended to do one thing together. And what is that? Worship the creator. All things are intended to testify of the glory of God by fulfilling their divine purpose. So worship and having a calling, in other words, isn't just something for humans All creation is made for purpose and worship. And there's more. It says in verse 17, Christ holds all things together. And this phrase kind of has a double meaning, right? Held together uh, primarily means sustained or able to keep going. So we use this phrase in English as an idiom when we say, oh, I got so much on my plate right now but I'm just trying to hold it what? Together. I'm trying to hold it together. And when you hold it together, uh, what are you doing? Well, you're still, you're still doing life in spite of a heavy load, 
right? Still air in the tires, still gas in the car, kids are still alive, house isn't on fire because you're a good human. You're, you're, you're holding your world together. And you know, Colossians 1.17 says, Christ is holding all things together. And that's, that kind of gets into the deep second meaning here because uh, the phrase doesn't read, in Christ, each human is holding it together. doesn't say that. It says, Christ is holding us. And not only us, but Christ is what? Christ is holding all things together. So the second meaning here is this. Christ holds everything in proper relationship to each other and the whole. You are held in a system. So you are held with the black bear, the cougar, the owl, the orca whale, the spawning salmon, the massive fur forests, Everything that lives in the Duwamish watershed, including you, it's all held together by God. Christ's intent, in other words, is not just that your spirit be delivered into eternity with God someday. Christ's intent is that this very world would be filled with creatures rightly related to God and rightly related to each other as a testimony to the wisdom and power and love of God for all of creation. God loves all of creation. God wants creation to testify of that love by being rightly related to one another in this beautiful ecosystem. Psalm 104 reinforces this. Job 38 reinforces this. Psalm 19 reinforces this. Colossians 1 reinforces this. So if you, like if you don't buy this, you have to read your Bible. Because like in the Bible, God's desire is that everything would be rightly related. And though this world is broken, in large measure, it still works pretty well, right? The sun came up this morning and the seasons are still here. And in spite of all the environmental degradation with which we suffer and the challenges we face in spite of all of that there's you know another season of bright fluorescent green on the tips of the fir trees and you and there's stuff growing in in your garden and there's still some salmon in the ocean in other words it's look it's broken but there's still a testimony that goes all the way back to genesis 9 until this is over there's going to be fall winter, spring, summer, seed time harvest. You will eat food today. You will drink water today. Why? Creation still testifies of interdependency. Still does. So that's kind of the deepest reality, right? And then when it's actually fixed, because it is broken, when it's fixed, we read in Isaiah that humans, all humans, will be rightly related to one another because they're also rightly related to God. Isaiah chapter 2 articulates all the nations, you know, going up a mountain together, joining hands, saying, let's worship the Lord. He will teach us truth. And they melt down their weapons and they turn them into tools of agriculture. And it says, there will be no more war, no more death, no more dying, no more disease, no more oppression. Why? Because when God reigns fully, the end of the story is reconciliation vertically and horizontally with people. But it doesn't stop there. Isaiah 11 says that there's some mystical, as yet not understood transformation of the predatory prey nature of the animal world because it says the lion will lie down with the lamb. And then even we read in Isaiah 35 that, it, and it literally says this, even the desert will bloom. The desert doesn't bloom 
But the desert will bloom in this fully restored uh, creation. So the, the deepest reality is this. God's desire is for a world that is perfectly related in interdependency, right? So that we have a part to play, but so do those trees out there, so do the flowers, so does the soil, so does the ocean, so do the fish in the, in the ocean, so does the air, so does everything. It's all related. Living in perfect, what is perfect, it's living in perfect interdependency. Now, uh, some evidence that this is true is that when you see signs of that beauty, you love it. Right? This is what I talked about a couple weeks ago. People are going around Green Lake, and when the group is stopped looking up, they're not looking at the Boeing plane landing. They're looking at an eagle or a crane or something. Because why? There's something that resonates, right? And then I go back to that transformation of predatory prey relationship that's articulated in Isaiah 11. Um, We have a phrase in English, fighting like cats and dogs. Why do we have that phrase? Because what do cats and dogs do? Often, they, they fight. And there's not like an abundance of Instagram videos of dogs and cats fighting for some reason. But there is an abundance of videos like this one. Just take a look. I mean, doesn't that just make you mad? No, like what just happened in your soul, right? You're like this, ah, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be, right? And this is what C.S. Lewis uh, talks about in, in his book, Surprised by Joy. Essentially, he says, there are times in life when we encounter kind of this taste of eternity that breaks into time. We get a glimpse of the world as it's supposed to be. And that invites us forward, right? That we love those kind of videos is evidence of what the Bible calls eternity in our hearts, God's law written on our hearts. And what it means is that we don't just want a world where we don't kill each other, we want shalom. And, and uh, we don't just want a world where we, won't, where we don't kill each other, we also understand that we're not supposed to leave mounds of dead buffalo in the Great Plains, that it's not right to clear-cut a forest. That it's not right to foul the ocean so profoundly that fish can no longer live there. Uh, that's not the way we're made to live. And we know it somehow. How do we know it? It's not just science. It's in our hearts, right? Made to live in a beautiful, interdependent world. So I want to encourage you as we bring this first observation with close, like this, this divine reality, never lose sight of God's vision which is this interdependent, beautiful creation, and try and every day find signs of that still extant, still, still here, right? Because it's here. I mean, the beauty, the, God is still sustaining all of it. Uh, I remember a day, maybe a couple of years ago, and I remember this day because I wrote about it in this book, Forest Faith, but I uh, woke in the morning and uncharacteristically uh, watched the news and read the New York Times and got super depressed about the state of the entire universe and wondered why even go to church anymore and what's it all for, who cares? And, and then went for a, a walk with my dog just, just as the sun was also rising. And it happened to be October 
And uh, the, I'll, I'll just never forget this moment. I'm at this little place called Gold Creek Pond up near where I live. And as the sun rose, uh, the first light hit like the sole uh, deciduous tree in an evergreen forest and just lit up this tree that was already gold and red and yellow leaves. And this tree is just lit up and it just brought tears to my eyes. I was like this, oh, this is still happening. In spite of all that we do, there's, there are still hints, right? Look for those hints, friend, because that, that's what sustains us and gives us hope. God is still in control. This world is broken, but it's not destroyed. And God wants us to testify of the, of the divine reality every day by seeing it and worshiping. Second, though, here's the difficult reality. Uh, the world is profoundly broken. Though we're made to be in interdependency with all creation, uh, we're not. So we're not living in this beautiful interdependent world. We're living in a world of war and rape and murder and racism and abuse and infidelity and economic inequity and loneliness and disease. And, and of course, since we're talking about stewardship of creation, in the midst of all these human problems, there's also profound evidence of broken relationship with creation as well. And the fact that so many relationships are in need of reconciliation is evidence there's a deep problem running through the world. But here's something I, we just have to observe. It's, uh, I always ask the question, like, if there's all these problems, like, what's at the headwater? Like, what's the mother of all problems, right? Do, do you know what I mean? Because... If you work on just fixing racism, let's not kid ourselves, that's not the source of all problems. If you work on just uh, fixing sexual abuse and misogyny, that's not the source of all problems. Just fix economic inequity, that's not the source of all problems. Just try and end war, it's not going to solve anything. Neither is environmental decay the source of all problems. The headwaters of all relationships that are in need of reconciliation is this, humanity's broken relationship with God needs to be fixed. If we don't fix that, nothing else works. And this is really, really important because this problem is, in a sense, a double problem. There's the problem of original sin that you see in the story of Adam and Eve in the, in the garden. And as a result of that story, all of humanity has fallen. But I want to hone in today on the subsequent generation, the story of Cain and Abel. Because in that story, if you know it, here's two brothers, offspring of Eve. Cain is kind of jealous of Abel and gets angry and he kills him. And the bottom line is that Cain allowed anger and jealousy to take root and flourish. And the fruit of that was murder. And what was born from that incident came to be known in the Bible and in literature as the way of Cain or the mark of Cain. So watch this. Cain determines that he's going to be the master of his own fate. He's going to take things into his own hands. Are you with me? And the summary of what happens as a result of Cain is that, like, that mindset, I'm going to take things into my own hands, that mindset is on kind of full display. Our entire world is saturated with it. Ephesians 6 calls it principalities and powers. I call it a domination model. And so here's the thing. There's kind of three ways in which our relationship with God was broken. They're 
in your bulletin, if you like to fill in blanks, so here we go, uh, we're called to embody shalom, but humanity's prevailing paradigm is domination. And just to show you what I mean by that, we'll look at this slide real quick. Cain and Abel are right there, down there at the bottom. I view this as the foundation of this domination model that just runs through history, right? It works this way. Like, I want what you have, so if I have the power to take it, I'm going to take it. And that's what Cain did, but not just Cain. That's what empires do. That's what colonialism does. That's what slavery does. That's what racism does. That's what misogyny does. That's what everything does. We live in a world saturated with this domination model. I want what you have, and since I have enough power, I'm going to take it. And the power could be guns, or money, or political power, or brute strength. It could be your place on an org chart. But whatever the source, when people use power to fill the demands of their appetites at the expense of the well-being of others, that's the domination model. And we swim in it every day. And then, we're called to stewardship, but instead have often embraced what I call a paradigm of total ownership. Now, I want to be clear here that God is not opposed to ownership and private property. I mean, it's all through the Bible. It's fine. No problem. But let's think ultimately of who owns the property. What do the scriptures tell us? The earth is, finish it with me, the earth is the Lord's. I mean, you may have a title to, you know, 2,000 square feet here in Seattle that's worth $8 million or something like that. Good for you. But you don't have total ownership. It's yours for a season, right? And there's an extent to which we even understand this uh, in, a, in an unredeemed culture because if your neighbor turns the volume up at 2 a.m. and there's a wild party, you can call them and say, hey, I've got infants. And normally, people will be responsive Though recently not, someone got killed for this recently in, in, in Texas. But normally, if there's a sense of, oh, we're kind of, okay, we're in this together. It's my property. Technically, I can turn the music up as loud as I want. But my actions as owner have consequences on others. Not only other people, but other life forms as well, if I own lots of acreage. So... We're called to stewardship, but often have embraced a model of total ownership. And then third, we're called to gratitude, but often have embraced a paradigm of entitlement. We're, we're invited in the scriptures to have this kind of ongoing sense of gratitude because we, we live with this realization. Do you know what? Every breath, every sip of water, every sunrise, every moment of intimacy, every, every day is a gift from my creator. I didn't earn it. I don't, I don't deserve it. I'm flawed. I'm sinful. I've got my dark side. I'm greedy. But in spite of all of that, the sun still comes up. In spite of all that, I still drink clean water. In spite of all of that, I still enjoy a great meal. Why? God is good and gives gifts to all of us. It's God's kindness, Romans 2, intended to lead us to repentance. But instead, often we come to expect and even demand these gifts. And if they're withheld for even a second, we rise up and fight. Or, or worse, we just simply want more. And so, you know, there are 
there are places in the world no longer forested because they wanted more wood, more wood, more wood. And then they, they leveled the land. That's Britain, frankly. And then, and then uh, they passed laws over here when we were the colonies saying any tree uh, bigger than two feet in diameter belongs to the king. You can't cut it down. It's, it's the king's, right? Why? He wanted more wood. So like this, this notion of gratitude is like this stuff is a gift and, and now I'm giving it to steward but if it's entitlement I, I lose my sense of gratitude and worship and appreciation and the result of these three things, right? Domination instead of shalom, total ownership instead of stewardship, entitlement instead of gratitude is Isaiah 34, 11, which says here, God's judgment, he says, look, there will be places on the earth, my paraphrase for time, places on the earth that will be uninhabitable. This river will turn to blood. This, this beautiful, uh, lush greenery will become dry land. And no one will be able to live, live there other than the hedgehog, right? Uninhabitable humans. Now, here's the thing. Often, in our, my opinion, skewed view of God, we view God as kind of looking at humanity and going, wow, look at them. They're having so much fun, but it's not my kind of fun. I'm going to punish them. <clears throat> Here's some bloody water. Here's some sick cows. Here's a forest fire. And like God's dishing this stuff out because he's mad at you. That's how, I don't think that's how judgment works in light of Romans 1. Because here's Romans 1. God's pouring gifts out on humanity, all creation, right? And then what? It says, Humans then, rather worshiping, became Cain, clung to, wanted more, used a domination model. So here's God's judgment in Romans 1. So God, what does it say? Polluted the waters? Poisoned the soil? No, no, no. We do that. Here's judgment. God says this. Oh, oh, I see. You want to be king. Here's the judgment, you get to be king. Oh, I see, you want to make all your own consumer choices without regard to anything other than your personal well-being. Well, here's the judgment, make all your consumer choices without any regard to your well-being. Oh, 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 I see, oh, you want to run the show, you want to be the master of your own faith. Here's the judgment, congratulations, run your own show. And, you know, 10,000 years of humanity doing that has us here. Afraid there won't be salmon, won't be whales, won't be wildlife. And now, kind of slowly, it's dawning on us that if there's, not, if there's a wildlife, there's a good chance there won't be any human life either. Because, oh, hello, we are all interdependent. Only we didn't know that and decided to run our own show. And God said, well, here's a judgment. You want to run your own show? Run your own show. And the fruit of that is... Uh, two words in Isaiah 34, des desolation and waste, the same two words in uh, Genesis 1. At the beginning of creation, before God brings functionality, you had material, but no function. And then God says, if you continue to run the show without regards to stewardship, the earth will have no function. That's what God is saying. So the difficult reality is this, we're embedded in this world 
a world of domination, total ownership, and entitlements, rather than shalom and stewardship and gratitude. And since, Galatians 6, we reap what we sow, you know what's happening? We're reaping what we've sown. Now, what's the disciples' response? Well, if we go back to our original quiz, if the power of God's reconciling work only extends vertically, there is no response for us. We're like this, whatever. This is all gonna burn anyway. I'm saved, good enough. Or maybe if we're really progressive, we're like this. I'm saved, but I'm also responsible to make sure other people get saved too. And, and to fix broken human relationships. So we're going to work on, you know, race and sexism and stuff like that. But, but the trees? Nah. This is, that's, a, that's a prop on a stage. The story God is writing is a human story. And the third option is God is reconciling what? All things. So reconciliation involves a change in relationship. Romans 5.10 says that this vertical relationship was repaired through Christ to the cross. Ephesians 2.14-16 says that the dividing wall between humans is broken down, beautifully articulated in Galatians 3, which says there's no, there's no longer these kind of divisive categories, male, female, slave-free, um, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile. Christ is all in all. But then third... Um, reconciliation of all things. How do I know that? Revelation 21.5. The words of Jesus. Behold, I'm making all things new. Colossians 1. All things created by him. All things created for him. All things created through him. So this is the essence of our calling to kind of embody and testify and work toward the shalom of all things. So the well-being of these trees and the well-being of my neighbor and the well-being of my enemy and the well-being of my spouse and the well-being of my own relationship with God are all, it's all on the table as one, it's one piece of cloth. And here's kind of the problem. If I focus on reconciliation with God, but I don't embrace holistic shalom, not only will I continue to trash the environment, but if I can speak bluntly, um, as a church, we will be viewed even more irrelevant than we are currently viewed, right? Because we live in a place where people are existentially mindful that the world is on fire and wondering who's gonna do something about it. So it falls to us uh, to pay attention to environmental um, uh, stewardship because of our call to be reconcilers of all things. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there are those who are so disillusioned with Christianity and historic orthodoxy because of our quote-unquote irrelevance that it's been shoved to the side and people are saying, you know what? Forget the church. We got to save the whales or the trees or pick your project we got we to fix this. And I'm just going to say to you, environmental action without reconciliation with God is ultimately unsustainable. Now, why do I say that? Because I read history. And when I read history, this is what I see. With every empire, 
with every utopian vision that started a community over and over and over and over and over and over and over again without Christ, boom, domination wins every time. It just is the way it is, right? So I need Christ, otherwise domination wins. But I don't need a Christ who's purview of reconciliation is wholly spiritual because I'm called to holistic reconciliation of all things. That's our charge as a community. If you want to see a great example of this, I encourage you when the, as soon as the service is over to walk um, east on 80th and uh, you'll see our little uh, rewilding project which is the soil that used to be a lawn and if you if you go there, there's signs, there's a QR code, and you can see what we're doing and why, but why are we doing this? To testify that God, in his reconciling work, cares for all of creation, and therefore, so do we. That's one of the things we're doing collectively. Another is working on a community garden with World Relief. You can uh, go to our website and volunteer. That'll be happening next weekend. All of our partners, Circlewood, this is all the work of reconciliation, but hear me, Not as an end in itself, but in Jesus' name, because Christ is the reconciler of all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can worship you today in a world that in spite of our sin, our greed, our domination, our ways of Cain, in spite of all of it, the rain still comes, the food still grows, the sun still shines, the trees still exhale oxygen. We are the recipients of your infinite mercy every day. Open our eyes to see and live with gratitude, but more, to respond as stewards and fulfill our calling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.